His face shone like the sun, and his clothing became as white as light. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Christian faith is grounded in historical fact. It's not a fiction. It's not a myth. It's not a religion in the sense in which the world uses that word. We believe in Christ Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary. We believe in Christ Jesus, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We believe in Jesus, who was raised from the dead. It is with this same historicity that we believe that on that very day, on that very mount, as Jesus was praying, his face began to show light as if the very sun were there with its glorious beams, and his garments began to shine with light, pure white, nearly blinding. This truly happened, and it is a beautiful con... What's the word I'm looking for? (laughs) Condescension of God, where he humbles himself in order to reveal to Peter, James, and John who Christ truly is. This human being, this true man, is also true God. And he shines with light in their presence to enlighten them, to draw them into God's presence. That is why he has come, to reconcile God to man. The transfiguration itself, then, is always just this simple. But, of course, it is a multifaceted revelation as well. I'm probably going to break every rule of homiletics, but oh well. I'm just going to share with you some of those facets. I can't help myself. In the immediate context, Peter has just made the great confession of faith. Jesus asks, Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter responds. Jesus goes on to talk about how as he is the Christ, he will lay down his life on the cross. To this, Peter objects, and Christ speaks those stern words, Get behind me, Satan. Up upon the mountain, after Jesus has made his public confession that he will die on the cross, that is when he receives the commendation of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When he says he is going to the cross, that's all part of the plan. We see a kind of parallel to Jesus' baptism where Jesus goes into those waters that have washed sins away. And as the sinless one has those dirty waters, has those sins heaped upon him, and the Father beams from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descends upon him like a dove. Here we have the same language coming from the voice of the Father, but not the Spirit descending in the likeness of a dove, but rather the Spirit descending in the likeness of the cloud. 
we see here, too, that this takes place on a mountain. We can't help but reflect ever so briefly on the great mountains that are tied into this transfiguration event. The Garden of Eden itself was either a mountain or had a mountain in it. If you remember, after the flood, the ark lands on Mount Ararat, and the dawning of the new era, as it were, begins on a mountain. Mount Moriah is the mount where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac. It is said on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And indeed, it's that very mount upon which God provides his lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How can we forget Mount Sinai? And that mount in particular is of importance because both Moses and Elijah have experiences with God on Mount Sinai. And that's probably why they both appear here in the transfiguration. Moses was in a cave and asked if he could see God. And if you recall, God covered the entrance of the cave and then uncovered it so that Moses could see the backside of God. Elijah finds himself likewise on a, in a cave on Mount Sinai. And the Lord passes by as well. If you remember, we're told of the wind that breaks the rock, but the Lord's not in the wind. And we're told of the earthquake, but the Lord's not in the earthquake, and the fire, but the Lord's not in the fire, and then the still, small voice. So there are these revelations, these manifestations of God on Sinai, and they all climax now as Moses and Elijah see the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are speaking of Jesus' exodus, so the entire history of the exodus comes pouring into this text. And of course, we have such beautiful imagery, the cloud which descended and led the people of Israel by day and descended upon the tabernacle and now descends upon Jesus. We have the voice of God from the heavens speaking upon the mountain. We have Peter talking about tents, which is almost certainly a statement that he believes the Feast of Tabernacles has now been fulfilled. Peter's mistake is he jumps the gun. He's thinking that the end of the world has come, that this is it, Christ is going to reign, Moses and Elijah sit at his right hand and his left. Let's build some tents. Let's get paradise started. We see in the presence of Moses, the resurrection. Remember how Moses dies on yet another mount and God himself buries Moses' body and then there's a dispute recorded in the book of Jude between the archangel Michael and Satan over the body of Moses. Here Moses appears resurrected. And then Elijah, there's a kind of type of that being changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Elijah never dies and rather is taken up into heaven bodily in a chariot. And here appears bodily with Moses next to Christ. As you can see then, 
there are a few other things that I've left out. It's as if the whole Bible comes together in this glorious transfiguration. So at its base, the transfiguration is the beautiful humility of God where he himself testifies and and bears witness to the reality that this man, Jesus, is my beloved son. Listen to him. And in all its complexity, we could spend the rest of the church here talking about the transfiguration. Peter has this to say. It is a remarkable thing. You caught it moments ago. He speaks of the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Here's the key. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. In other words, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses, but you have something more sure than we had by the testimony of our own eyes. You have the Holy Scriptures. With that statement, the Holy Scriptures become beautifully transfigured, don't they? The Holy Scriptures are written by men, but indeed they are breathed out by the very Spirit of God. Scripture, like Christ, is true man and true God. The Scriptures themselves become transfigured as a light shining in the darkness. We see that then at the very root of what transfiguration is, is that it's a revelation, an ever-deepening revelation of reality. A reality and a deeper reality still. Jesus is true man, but the deeper reality is that he is true God. The scriptures are penned by human authors over centuries, but the deeper reality is they are the very breath of the Holy Spirit. All of creation is likewise transfigured then and enlightened, illumined by the word of God, transformed. So the first book of natural revelation is enlightened and illumined by the second book, the book of the Holy Scriptures we begin to see the world ever more deeply as it really is. Speak more to that point in just a moment. But what you need to realize then is what Satan and the powers of darkness are doing in our world today is fundamentally a subversion of reality. It's fundamentally a war against reality. I won't belabor the point, but I'll give you just a few examples that'll no doubt resonate with you already. Feminism has articulated that a man has to be everything a woman is, or excuse me, a woman has to be everything a man is, or else she has no value as a woman, is itself misogynistic, 
is itself a denigration of what God has made women to be and the great glory that he has given to women as distinct from men. So it is a war against reality to assert that women are no different than men. Of course, it's a war on reality to assert that a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man. Indeed, this is impossible. A man who goes through any number of surgeries is just, at the end of the day, a mutilated man. Same with a woman. So-called gay marriage is no marriage at all. There's no one flesh union, for there can be no children. It's a complete war against reality. It's a complete lie about what truly is. Abortion, of course, in the words of Peter Kraft, rightfully so, has become the satanic sacrament of our age, where the woman even mocks and apes at Christ's word, saying, this is my body, and uses that as the very reason to cut off life, whereas Christ says, this is my body, and gives his body freely in order to bestow life. It's a war on reality. And euthanasia, if, as C.S. Lewis says, pain is God's megaphone, then what do we do when we euthanize the aged? We simply cut them off from the very loudest moment of their lives where God calls them to repentance and calls them to reality that they might be saved forever. When we say that there's no quality of life and it would be merciful to kill them, these are all just lies. Quality of life is something bestowed by God. And in suffering, there is great quality of life. Isn't that, after all, what we think about the suffering of Jesus? Quality indeed. So the world is engaged in a war against reality. Its revelation is that reality is to be overcome. God works in exactly the opposite way. Reality is reality. It is true and it is good. And enlightened and illumined by God's word, you'll see reality ever more deeply. So you might look up at the night sky and see the stars, but you're going to see a lot more if you drive out to the desert and look up. And you're going to see a lot more still if you get out a telescope. Or think of something small. You're going to look at it and know so much of it, but if you pull out a magnifying glass, you'll know all the more about it, and a microscope, even more still. God's word works just as these tools do to give us an ever more and more detailed, more and more clear, more and more specific revelation of who he is and what reality is. So, give you another concrete example to meditate on. Here at church, what do you see with your eyes? See a sinner up here preaching. You see people gathered around who have problems. And maybe they sing off tune. Maybe their outfit offends you. Maybe they sat in your pew. Who knows? You see all kinds of weakness and humility. Not this organist, of course, or any organist we've ever had here, but sometimes they miss notes. Sometimes the part of the liturgy gets dropped. You see plain water, as you did last week, used in baptism. In a few moments, you'll see plain bread and wine. There's not much glorious to the eye. We love these things because we love Christ Jesus, but there's not much to the earthly eye. How does Scripture transfigure reality? 
How does scripture change and illumine the way we perceive reality? Well, listen to these words from the book of Hebrews. They're speaking of divine service. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. That's what's actually going on here. It's where holy baptism, illumined by God's word, becomes an action whereby God himself has taken you and so united you personally with Christ that his tomb has become your tomb and his resurrection has become your resurrection. Spiritually, you are raised even now. He so enlightens your eyes that even through the stumbling and bumbling and occasional errors of a human preacher, he says of his preachers, whoever hears you hears me. It is the voice of Christ that cries out to you directly and personally through his word. You come to this table. And what did we just read? Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. What is the new covenant? What is the New Testament? In all the red letters, Christ says it one time. This cup is the New Testament. Drink of it, all of you. It is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And if we believe all this that the scriptures speak, we must also believe that there are angels and archangels and all the company of heaven all around us, that the saints are gathered here, that heaven and earth are one here, though invisible to our eyes, enlightened by the word of God, as St. Peter says, we begin to see just as the very human flesh of Jesus shined on the mount, we see Christ Jesus present with us now, illumining and shining through all the things of the church. Why do people hate church? They hate God. That's an easy answer. But they also think the church is far too humble for them. They hate the humility of the church, even as they hated the humility of Christ. It benefits us and benefits our witness if we remember what the scriptures say, that the eyes of faith illumined by God's word can see Christ's face shining radiantly in his presence here and in the gifts he gives. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see all other things by it. How true that is for the transfiguration. We see the reality that the mortality rate, it doesn't matter how much exercise you do or how many leafy greens you eat or however healthy you live, it's 100%. You're going to die just like the rest. We see the reality of sin God doesn't even have to be angry to terrify us. He just has to be truthful. He just has to shine his divine light upon our souls. And we'll see all the kinds of things of which our Lord speaks 
evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things are what exist within the heart of man, and it is they that defile a person. The insanity of our sinful condition, of course, is we know who God is, we know the judgment is coming, and we still can't help ourselves from sinning, from doing those evil things that we desire not to do. That is reality. But the great reality of Christ's face shining on the Mount of Transfiguration is gathered around him are sinners and sinners only. Moses, a sinner. Elijah, a sinner. Peter, James, and John, sinners. And the same is true for us gathered here. Every last person, a sinner, upon whom the light of Christ now shines. It is he who forgives your sins. And it is he who promises an answer to death. And fall into all kinds of doubts. Start to believe the world maybe is just truly a product of evolution and it's just all materialism and what you see is what you get. Rouse yourself from that foolishness. God says only a fool denies God and says there is none. Rouse yourself from that foolishness and come back to the reality that there's a creator. Now, which religion is true? That is every bit as easy. There is only one religion on the face of the earth where God becomes flesh for sinners and gives his own life for you and draws you in to reconcile you to the Father, putting away all your sins and putting away death and sharing his transfiguration with you. Indeed, there are these marvelous words of Jesus, so marvelous we skip over them. But listen to what he says. The righteous, that's you who believe in Christ, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Christ's transfiguration will in fact be completed when we as members of his body likewise shine with his divine light. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.